Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Ilan Stavans on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that he co-authored with Steve Schenken called El Illuminado, a graphic novel. I tried my hand a number of years ago at working with artists and writing historical graphic novels and produced three of them. I found the process extraordinarily interesting, and I think that we did good work, but let me tell you what Ilan and Steve have done is really quite remarkable. This is a beautifully produced book. It is wonderfully written. It tells the story of the conversos or morenos or crypto-Jews of the old world in Spain and then the new world in Mexico and in the southern United States. It does so in a really fascinating way through a kind of mystery story. I'm not going to give anything away because it's so much fun to read and it is so beautiful to look at. I very much encourage you to go out and buy this book. You will not be disappointed. It is a model for all of us who want to take our work and make it accessible to the public. And I hope that other people copy this model. I really do. And I want to also congratulate Basic Books on publishing this particular work. And I hope that, I really hope that a lot of people read it. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Ilan. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well. How are you today? Very well. Thank Good. you. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, today we are talking to Ilan Stavans about his book, um, El Illuminado. It's a graphic novel that he did with Steve Schenken. Is that how you pronounce Steve's name? Yes. Schenken. Yes, Steve Schenken. Um, as I told Ilan in the pre-interview, I actually had tried my hand at this with a couple of artists a few years ago, and I found it a really interesting process to work with an artist. And I think it's a great initiative in the sense that it gets out serious historical ideas, historical, cultural, literary ideas in a form which is a little bit unusual for academics, though I think it's much more accessible than or accessible than my dreadful monographs. I'm sure that Ilan's monographs are much more <laughs> accessible than mine. But but this is a totally readable book. It's an extraordinarily interesting book. Uh, the art is beautiful and um, it's you know it's 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 funny and it's touching and it's self-effacing and it has drama in it. It has all the things that a good book should have, and I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And so when I saw it, I said, "I have to do this one." It's unusual for us on New Books in History because we've never really done anything like this. But I I really hope that we do in the future. And I want to uh, applaud, applaud Ilan and um, Steve for picking it up because it's really I, great. I, and, and and I want to applaud the, the publishers for for publishing it. It was basic, wasn't it? Basic published it. So that's right. I hope they do more of this stuff. I really do. So Ilan, maybe you could be begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. By all means, I am a Mexican Jew uh, living in the United States uh, these days. I am a descendant of uh, Eastern European Yiddish-speaking uh, immigrants who um, 
prior to the Holocaust came to different parts of the Americas, Central America, Mexico, the Caribbean, and eventually settled in Mexico City. My parents were already born in Mexico City, and I am an emigrant, so to speak, because I left the country and came uh, to the United States first as a correspondent for a Mexican newspaper to New York City and eventually enrolled in a graduate school there in the city at Columbia uh, University in in large part, uh, not because I had a, a, a preconceived plan to, to become a professor uh, Indeed, I had no interest in academia whatsoever, but I had a visa problem. And <laughs> the only way to remain in this country was to, to, to have that uh, enrollment in graduate school. And uh, from there, I have uh, become a teacher, uh, which is a, a, a feature of my uh, identity that I now cherish very, very much. And, and it communicates constantly and deeply with my writing. I have a, I, I, I write uh, both in Spanish and in English, uh, sometimes also in Yiddish and in Hebrew. Those are my four languages. In Spanish, I write for newspapers, a syndicated column, and I write short stories and, and essays. Um, and in English, I also write for newspapers and magazines and do my um, kind of more scholarly work in for, in books, but books are also uh, a forum that I use very much for exploring topics that uh, I think would be of interest to the larger audience, a larger public. Um, what else can I tell you? I have done some television uh, for PBS, and I am a translator of uh, Neruda and uh, Borges, from Spanish to English, and of Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson into Spanish. And I am committed, fascinated, maybe even obsessed with the topic of translation because of my own personal story, but because also of the way the United States handles itself today, where translation plays a major role in almost every facet of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's that's quite remarkable. That's the the breadth is truly impressive. I, I guess I want to. I said that I was going to begin by asking you how you came to write El Illuminado, but I, I want to ask a, a prior question just because it's interesting to me. What was it like to grow up in Mexico as a Jew? I, I don't. I mean, I know what it's like in the United States. I, I am. Um, yeah. I. It's a. It's a question that has uh, been at the center of my being, Marshall, for ever since I came to the United States. And it is really kind of the parting of waters, that moment of arrival, uh, the one that made me look back and see my own upbringing under a different light. I I grew up in this small enclave. Uh, Yiddish was the language of instruction, the language of communication with grandparents and with parents. It was the language of domesticity, the language of continuity in terms of culture, in terms of tradition. Spanish was the language of the street, the public language, the language of our national connection. And those two languages kind of interacted with one another, never really kind of uh, jumping on each other. That is, I, as I look back today, I wonder if there was something in between um, Yiddish and Spanish the way there is in English and Spanish, 
something called Spanglish these mm-hmm. days. We didn't really mix the languages. We kept those different spheres separate. In, but as I look back, I think that I was a Jew in Mexico, not really a Mexican, until I left Mexico in 1985 and came to New York City. And all of a sudden, I became Mexican by being (laughs) far away from my country and by virtue of the fact that I had just landed in New York City where people couldn't really, didn't really care about my being Jewish there. The Jewish Jewish life is so so prevalent in in New York City. But the fact that I, I, I look... A Caucas- I, I look Caucasian, I come from a European background, and I am a Spanish and a Mexican Spanish speaker. It puzzled people. And, and it, it was at that moment where I started to look back at my own Mexican background and started to think more consciously and conscientiously about what it meant to have been a Mexican Jew speaking uh, Yiddish, a language of very, very few people at that time in my country, and how that defined me. So, ironically, I have ended up becoming a person who deals a lot with Mexico and Latin America in his work, in large part because of this fracture or juncture that took place right in the middle of my life when I was 25 and that uh, defined me as a as a as an as a minority as an outsider and I think that that quality uh, that that status being a minority is still one that I have here in the United States where I have become a member of another minority you know the Latinos mm-hmm. or or Jews and uh, and as an outsider too because of that capacity or or in this position of looking at things both from the inside and from the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, identity is one of the uh, most important topics in the book. And there, there are a couple of moments in it that I really uh, liked very much. Like, for example, uh, when you get the cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. See, my, 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 I'm from the yes, Midwest. Um, yeah, these I'm, are, you know, that, that particular section, Marshall, is was in response to a question that I, I had recently from a member of, of an audience in a museum where I had been talking. Um, this in, this particular individual asked me if I ever uh, wore a Mexican sombrero, <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know it struck me as a as such a such a strange question. I wasn't really sure if to be offended by it or use it as a stimulating. A opportunity to reflect, which is what I ended up doing, to reflect on larger issues of stereotypes. I mean, I, I, I had hardly ever seen a Mexican wearing a sombrero. I'm talking about a mariachi sombrero. Unless this person is really a mariachi or a musician or is doing some sort of performance or acting. Otherwise, we Mexicans don't have those sombreros. And yet for this for this person, a Mexican needs to be connected with a sombrero. So I thought that I would play kind of in a, in a in a entertaining way with the with the idea of turning myself into a cowboy i am a, a, a character kind of maybe the leading character in in the graphic novel mm-hmm. el iluminado and and i like to make fun of myself in real life and use that in the novel as well so using that sombrero uh, that hat in this case of, of a cowboy, was an opportunity to put myself in a kind of strange, uh, compromising situation in the novel that was prompted by this experience that I had had. Well, the, the, 
the graphic novel is very funny in many ways. It's very <laughs> self-effacing, and also it pokes fun at um, it pokes fun at academia. And I, I I don't really ever take academia very seriously, but I think you do a wonderful job of <laughs> of poking fun at our little weird conventions. And the reason the cowboy hat stood out for me is that my uh, uncles and father and grandfather they all wore cowboy hats. And when I was growing up, I just couldn't wait to get away from that. I would never <laughs> wear a cowboy hat, never. Well, one one of the things that I I wanted to do in the book, Marshall, is really to this is a story about uh, the crypto juice in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a story really about how Jews and Latinos have been with each other for for centuries. But indirectly, it is also a it is also a campus novel without the campus. It is about academics fighting for for a manuscript, for some secret information that might reveal a, a crucial chapter in this history of Jewish-Latino relations. And, um, you know, I think academics, we are a little too aloof, a little too pretentious, a little too... Uh, self-assured, thinking that we are above everybody else. And this in the book is an opportunity to poke fun at, at this uh, arrogant attitude that we have that distances us from from society rather than what it should happen, making us an integral part of that society, of that culture. Uh -huh. No, I, I, I agree completely. Uh, so let's, let's actually get into the history a little bit. Uh, the, the story, the background to the story, it, it takes place in contemporary New Mexico, but the background is 16th century Spain and mm -hmm. Inquisition is going on and the Jews have been expelled and of course, and some of them uh, convert. Maybe you could pick it up from there. Sure. Um, the, the crucial year in Hispanic history, and maybe the crucial year in Western civilization, the Annus Mirabilis, is uh, 1492, the year in which uh, Columbus sailed across the Atlantic and Europe uh, discovered or encountered an entirely new landscape that uh, not only uh, created a bridge, but ultimately changed the face of Europe in dramatic ways. That year, 1492, is crucial in Spanish history in particular for three reasons. The first one is that it is the year in which the Jews were expelled from the peninsula after a long a period known as the Reconquista, the Catholic king and queen, Ferdinand and Isabella, finally were able to unify the country under a single religion out of the three religions, the three Western religions that at that time were coexisting or cohabiting in, in the, in the, in that particular uh, part of the world, Catholicism, Christianity, um, Judaism, and Islam. And in creating a single unified nation, their mission, their objective was to leave out the other two religions. Islam would eventually be also expelled uh, from Andalusia and from other parts of, of Spain. And the Jews were categorically thrown out in, in uh, 1492. And that came as a, as a conclusion to a long period of slow uh, push of the Jewish communities to the margins, uh, victimizing them, persecuting them, and mostly forcing them to conversion. Those Jews that uh, were going to stay, according to this essential 
in two of the of the effort to to turn the country into a single religion nation was the was the inquisition the, the effort by the inquisition was to make those that wanted to stay in the country become catholic through conversion and it used all sorts of mechanisms including as we know torture and other forms of violence in order to achieve that goal the second important event that occurred in 1492 is really kind of the other side of the coin. The first one is the pushing of those that Spain considered outsiders or the undesirable, the others. And this second event is what Columbus did by accident, by stumbling upon this new continent that uh, some people had foreseen, had predicted, but nobody in Europe, at least not in that region, had actually seen the Americas. And in encountering the Americas, there was a huge new population, the indigenous, the native population, that Spain now had to deal with in a way that um, is reminiscent of the troubled relationship that Catholics had with the Islam and with Judaism. What to do with the Aztecs, the Nahuatls, the Mayans, the all this other um, uh, indigenous population in the region. And there was a big debate among missionaries, among uh, explorers, conquistadors, and eventually in Spain as well, about who this, who this population was. Was it really human? Were they um, capable of being civilized? And uh, to what extent should the Inquisition be transported to the New World and uh, be used as a tool, again, to project the the reach of the Catholic Church. And the third event, which I find also uh, equally important, is that in 1492, the first grammar of the Spanish language was published by a philologist from the University of Salamanca called Antonio de Nebrija. And in the prologue of that, uh, of that uh, grammar, he, he thanked the Catholic queen, Isabella, for the support that she had given him and told her that he f he saw Spanish as la compañera del imperio, the, the companion of empire mm -hmm. in, uh, in this new endeavor that Spain was about to undertake in the new world. So in, for me, it's very interesting how ethnicity, religion, and language all come together in this decisive moment, 1492. It, Spain it used the Bible, used the gunpowder, and used Spanish all as uh, mechanisms to make Spanish culture um, prevalent in the New World, in Mexico and in Peru. Those were the, mo the two most uh, important uh, centers in the New World in the 16th century. And this, the novel, the El Iluminado, takes place in at the end of that 16th century when a number of Jews that have chosen in, in the peninsula that have chosen to keep their Jewish identity secret, hidden, they are called by historians and by by members of society the crypto Jews. Crypto meaning a secret. Decide to go to what was called then New Spain or eventually Mexico, and 
established there a series of communities because they have heard that the Inquisition, the Holy Office, is less stringent, less mighty and oppressive in those new lands than it is in Spain. And so relatives have kind of sent word back to Europe and invited inviting uh, cousins and mothers and and sisters and, and so on. The story in particular is about one of the most famous cases of inquisitorial persecution in Mexico of a man called Luis de Carvajal the Younger, who was invited to come to New Spain by his uncle, Luis de Carvajal the Older, um, with the idea that in the New World the family might be able to continue the secret practice of their Judaism, except that when Luis de Carvajal discovers that there is more freedom, uh, not too much more, but more in comparison with with Spain in 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 the New World, he starts literally coming out. I'm using a mm. a term that is very in, very much in fashion these days. He comes out of the closet and he starts telling people that he's actually a Jew. Not only that, he starts. Claiming that he is a biblical prophet with messianic talents and that he will lead other crypto Jews in a, a mission to regain what was lost, their, their religious identity. And so this is the story of, of the, the ordeal of Luis de Carvajal the Younger, as seen from the present tense by Myself, Ilan, a character that happens at the very beginning of the novel, El Illuminado, to give a lecture in Santa Fe where a number of crypto-Jews are in the audience. And after the lecture, one of these um, crypto-Jews, or, or apparently a member of, of that group, comes to Ilan and starts talking to him about a, a cousin that recently... The, it appeared that either he committed suicide or was murdered, and he might have left some sort of document, a, a diary, a translation, some sort of um, item that connects with a larger history of the crypto-Jews in the Southwest in the United States and indirectly with the Jews of, uh, of Mexico, which at, at, for a long time, until uh, 1848, was really part of an a unified entity. It was in uh, 1848 when, after the Mexican-American War, the United States acquired the the territories that, to a large extent, conform the Southwest today. You know, Colorado and Utah, and or parts of Utah, Nevada, um, and uh, New Mexico, and so on. And um, so, the the crypto Jews that lived in in the South, in Mexico, were really connected with those that lived in Santa Fe and Albuquerque. The entire novel takes place in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I actually wanted to pause right there before we talk about um, more about um, um, Cavajal. One of the things that was fascinating to me is that there are several large books, big fat books, mm -hmm. on crypto-Jews both in Spain and in the New World. And the question that occurred to me is, how do you write the history of people who are hiding <laughs> it's a wonderful question, Marshall, and it's a question that I want to answer by relating it or comparing it with a, with a similar dilemma, and that is, how do you do a history of the Kabbalah? This, the Kabbalah is, uh -huh. uh, is the major uh, 
uh, Jewish mystical trend that uh, by definition has kept itself alive by being hidden and it passes from from a, from a mentor to a disciple really in a quiet tangential way it, it, kind of shying shying away from the public eye and yet at the very beginning of the 20th century a major scholar one that i thoroughly admire a friend of uh, walter benjamin uh, gershom sholem started to devote his life eventually producing a, a magisterial series of works on the Kabbalah explaining how this tradition has continued over centuries really in 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 quiet uh, away from from everybody else and so there was always a contradiction in what Gershom Sholem was doing on the one hand bringing light uh, helping us understand the mechanisms of the the heterodoxy, the subvertive side of Jewish theology, the one that is connected with mystical aspects of God that the rabbis, the most canonical rabbis, considered to be heretical. He, he was bringing all this out to the open and making it very clear while realizing both he and the reader that he was doing something forbidden that he was that he was indulging in an act of intellectual curiosity that uh, was was prohibited by the very topic that he wanted to explain and something similar happens with the crypto Jews this is the story of a group that has survived by not wanting to be recognized i i find something utterly admirable. I, I feel awe by the continuity of those crypto Jews from generation to generation, sometimes passing on the secret in so subtle, so uh, delicate a way that a member of the next generation might not fully understand its significance. Um, there is such a complicated history of how crypto-Judaism has evolved over the years that it cannot avoid the understanding that assimilation or hybrid kind of mixed ways of understanding religion are an integral part of it. I think that trying to understand secrets is something that the human mind is always attracted to. And trying to understand the sects and clubs and masoneries and the and uh, this this type of uh, of societies that keep themselves alive by by not becoming part of the larger the larger status quo is something that I in, per, in particular have always been attracted to. And when growing up in Mexico, I am an Ashkenazi Jew, an Eastern European uh, Jew, Yiddish speaker, as I was telling you. So my I am not I have never been connected in genealogical terms with the crypto-Jewish tradition. But when growing up in Mexico, I had many friends that would tell me that either they were crypto-Jews or were descendant of crypto-Jews or knew somebody who was in the whole phenomenon fascinated me. In concrete, how do you make a history of a group that doesn't want to have a history or doesn't want others to have a history? Well, by, by, uh, by offending them. Mm-hmm. By by undermining their effort at the at the secrecy and and a hidden identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a, it's a. I see just what you're saying, and uh, yeah, no, it is a it is 
exposing people that don't want to be exposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a conundrum a, yeah. uh, that uh, that that needs to be addressed. But uh, the, what what I try to do in the book is not really go into the history itself, but trying to I try to understand through the character of Ilan and of Irina, a friend of Ilan in the book, what is it that uh, keeps people so connected. Uh, through secrecy and uh, to what extent is that secrecy a feature of us all or is it only a, a feature of this particular society the conclusion that I have reached Marshall over time is that um, the crypto Jews who are often rejected by normative Jews as not legitimate enough, not authentic enough, might well be the most Jewish of <laughs> Jews in that they have kept their status as outsiders, as a, a re resisting all sorts of external forces to undermine them. And, uh, and in doing so, they have, a, they have kept a sense of self that is utterly admirable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see just what you mean. Irina is a very interesting character, uh, she is Ronaldo's cousin, mm -hmm. and she really kind of drives the narrative in addition to you in the book because she really wants to find out what happened to Ronaldo. But along the way, she has to deal with this issue of crypto Jews, and she's Catholic, right. Catholic, Catholic, not, not not in the kind of superficial way. She's Catholic, and um, I just found her a very interesting character because as she learns about these things, you know, she has to. And this is another theme in the book. She has to confront this issue of authenticity. Right. Who are the you issue of authenticity yeah. and identity is one that I am uh, very, very concerned with, very attracted to. Irina is based on um, a woman who, after giving a lecture at the uh, Museum of New Mexico some years ago, came to me during the book signing and started telling me the story of, of this cousin that she had and, and, and they invited me to go out and, and we had some tacos, some Mexican food and during the conversation I realized that there was a, a wonderful story there to tell uh, that it had to be done through fiction, that is through the imagination, the imagination of the writer and not the imagination of the scholar and that Irina, that's not her real name, yeah. could become a central character and that her own dilemma, the dilemma of being raised Catholic, she is uh, from from uh, New Mexico but is very bright and goes to Brown and comes from Brown back to New Mexico with a perspective of a New Englander already educated who sees all, all this local folklore with a different perspective, that she herself was the the core of the story, the the dilemma of crypto Jews is one that uh, really has cut uh, families into factions. You know, when somebody comes out of the closet in one of these families and says, "I am a crypto Jew," very often. A sibling will say, "I think you're deluded. I think you're imagining all this. I don't think, I don't think that's true. You're trying to push a topic that uh, that you're inventing." And so there are two sides of a story. Sometimes the the 
grandfather who started this whole idea of being crypto or, or who passed it on has, has already died. And uh, what I found in my contact with many crypto Jewish families in the Southwest is that these families are balkanized. They are really divided. And Irina is a member of one of these families that wants to be neutral, wants to understand how her cousin Rolando came to the idea of being a crypto Jew, how does he connect himself, Rolando, who at the beginning of the story died, so he can't tell the story himself, to this ancestor, Luis de Carvajal, the younger, whom Rolando begins to celebrate, to admire, and ultimately to promote. And to what extent the rest of the family of Rolando is, is, is either aligned with his own vision uh, or mostly rejecting it, thinking that it's, uh, that it's unwise, that it's dangerous, and that uh, it is untrue, it's inauthentic. Um, you know, this is, a, this is I guess, uh, an opportunity for me, Marshall, in the book to talk about identity in the United States as a whole, not only crypto-Jews, but the the identity of all of us. To what extent is the identity that you, Marshall, have, that I have, an invention, an an individual invention um, that, that you have conveniently shaped or I have, as a result of a series of stimulation that we receive from our parents, mm-hmm. a desire to, to, to belong, to be accepted in different communities, but a way to, to feel comfortable and to fit in. Throughout the book, there's an ongoing kind of leitmotif, an ongoing question, and that is that the past is always fictional, that it's always conveniently shaped, and that identity is something that we choose uh, more than uh, it is implanted on us. Although I am perfectly aware that the dilemma between, the, the, the dichotomy between an identity that is forced on us and an identity that we choose is not easily resolvable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. You bring in at various points in the book sort of markers, they're almost arguments for a given identity, and then the characters confront them and mull them over and digest them. One that I was particularly interested in was the genetic evidence about um, the ancestry of certain descent communities, let's right. put it that way. Because now, you know, you can actually test people and do the consistency of the of mitochondrial DNA or the Y chromosome or whatever it is. You can pretty much tell where your ancestors came from. Exactly. Yeah. And this is something that uh, I couldn't avoid. It, it has literally changed the path, the pattern of the crypto-Jewish discourse. It used to be only about hearsay, what, what I heard from my grandparent, what, uh, what I read from a diary of a distant relative. And now there's the question of, can I prove it? Can I use DNA to show that I am or I am not? A few days ago, a few, uh, really almost a week ago, I presented the book in Santa Fe, again at the Museum of New Mexico. It was very crowded. And there was, there were a series of questions about the DNA that were were proved to me that this is a topic that people really are taking very seriously. Many, many people had already uh, done their own tests. Others were choosing 
clearly not to do those tests and to retain the sense of doubt, of questioning that they had, ha- they have had for many years. But there was a particular question, Marshall, that struck me as a very interesting. Uh, a crypto Jewish member in the audience, and that's the way he identified himself, asked me if I knew anything about the, the, the cancer that mm. Jews Jews, particularly from Eastern Europe, are said to have in their or propensity to mm-hmm. cancer are said to have uh, in their DNA. And if this uh, if this uh, characteristic would show up in the DNA of crypto Jews, and you know, my answer then and my answer now is that I am not a scientist. I know uh, about DNA as much as anybody who reads um, the popular newspapers and magazines. And so I wasn't really in the position of answering this. But what struck me is that the question is larger than the answer that the person was was uh, was hoping to get. The question is really, by getting our DNA test, are we not only uh, affiliating ourselves without a doubt to the Jewish tradition, but are we also inheriting from that Jewish tradition the complications, the medical complications that come with it? And um, it's a very legitimate question. Yeah, I found one of the things about these sorts of pieces of evidence which are sort of presented to the characters is how at first they all seem unambiguous, but they're really all ambiguous. You know, and, and the, the genetic evidence is, is a good example. I mean, it is true that you can show with a very high degree of probability about your descent group. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, but what does that mean exactly? You know, if you're a member sure. of, you know, you think about the early Christian church, all of those people were descendants of, uh, of Abraham, but all of them threw it off. Absolutely. I mean, they were just like, yeah, no, that's not me anymore. I'm different now. Or if, you know, if you enter a, in the Christian tradition, if you enter a monastery, they give you a new name. Of course. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And this is, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The DNA test is something that will help you maybe solidify certain, certain suspicions that you have or, or not. But in the end, it is, a, it is an invitation to fictionalize yeah. yet again what you can do with yourself and how you're going to shape your own identity in front of others. Yeah. In the Hispanic world, this is particularly complicated because crypto Jews are only a very small group, Marshall, of a very large con- con- contingent of individuals who converted, who by force or by will, and who, uh, in one way or another, kept something from their past in them, even without deliberately wanting that. Mm -hmm. The names Perez, for instance, in Spanish, which is one of the most popular names, uh, is said to be an indicator of a Jewish uh, blood or, or Jewish ancestry. I mean, if you open the yellow, the white pages in any city, Mexico City, Bogota, Buenos Aires, the number of Paris is so broad mm-hmm. as to suggest if indeed this is a clue of Jewish past that the entire civilization is <laughs> deeply defined by this Jewish ancestry. So yeah. so what does this say? Well, it says that we come from a common root, but what does it say below, be, beyond that? Well, whatever anybody wants to choose to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also like another indicator that it comes up again and again in the book, and this is especially true of your character because, you know, not, I'm sorry, this may sound like insulting, but being a 
pointy-headed academic like me, we always find these things, you know, like, and you say, oh, look, there's some Hebrew on, on this cathedral, or there is an obvious Jewish symbol. And it reminded me of my children. I'm Christian, or I'm from a Christian background, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, I know where my ancestors came from. They came from Germany, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, my son's name is Isaiah, mm-hmm. and, my daughter's so is my- name is, and my daughter's name is Miriam. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this confuses the heck out of people. Sure. You know, and because they're like, I didn't know you were Jewish, but I am not Jewish. Those are like good Old Testamentary names. Yes, you know? sure, of course. <laughs> they're just Old Yes, um, it's it's uh, it's all it's all speculation and it's all fiction, and that's why I like all this so much. Um, the at one point in the book, the characters see that the cathedral in in Santa Fe has the name of God written in Hebrew in its frontispiece at the very top in an arch, and this prompts. Well, this actually doesn't prompt. This is, comes as a conclusion to a search that they embark on on the question of what was the role of the crypto-Jewish community and of other types of Jews that they had become new Christians or had become conversos in the building of the infrastructure of the Catholic Church in Santa Fe, in New Mexico in general, Albuquerque and beyond, and in the larger Southwest. And the and the conclusion that they reach, and this is a novel, but it's not far fetched in any way, is that the, the very the very core of those temples it was was built by a community that, at the very least, descended from converses, and and maybe they were also crypto Jews. So, the, in 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 shaping uh, churches for Catholics, the Jews that were involved in it were also looking for a way to satisfy the status quo, the establishment, eh, while at the same time keeping their own identity in secret and kind of being left alone. And that is a tension that I find very stimulating. I I, uh, I want to note that uh, many of the most significant, many of the most vicious inquisitors of the Holy Office Torquemada being probably the most prominent uh, among them, were themselves descendants of Jews. Sometimes a convert can be far more radical than someone who has been born already into a religion because that convert needs to prove to others that he is either in or is either out, but there is no halfway. I didn't know, I didn't know that Torquemada was of Jewish descent. Um, so one of the most sympathetic characters to me in the book was, uh, I guess he's Ronaldo's brother, the priest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about him? Because he, you know, he, he obviously has a flock to take care of and he thinks this is kind of, you know, it's distracting, but in a certain way he's sympathetic and he wants to get to the bottom of it. Uh, and he kind of comes around at the end. <laughs> and, yes. You know, when you're in, in jail, it's an opportunity, Marshall Fort, for me as the as the author to show the the complex family unit that Rolando and Irina belong to. The one is pushing in the direction of a opening up his identity, coming out of the closet and saying that he is uh, a Jew and that now wants to affiliate himself as such. But at early, very early in the novel, 
he he dies. And the other is actually a, a, a sibling who is a priest. So he has taken really the other route, but a route that could be easily understood to be a negation of his brother, the, the, the Jewish searcher. Instead, I wanted to create a character that uh, that was was much more humane and and complex and sophisticated, a priest who sympathizes with this search, who understands that the 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 shaping of Catholicism in the Southwest has never been in black and white, has always had all all sorts of of colors, and that all those colors need to be understood, and that uh, just because you're a priest, it doesn't mean that you are going to have a single uh, dogmatic uh, orthodox view about uh, what the the Jewish past is. And I found that character to be, um, you know, it is sometimes said that your characters, when you're writing a novel, surprise you, that they do things that you didn't expect that they would do, that they are free in ways that you didn't imagine they could be and that you yourself might not be. And that is the case of the priest. He ended up evolving as a character in a way that surprised me, that uh, that really moved me. And I ended up really, at the beginning, I thought this was going to be a smaller character. And the more the book evolved, the more I showed different versions to different people, I realized that this character was far more important, maybe not a protagonist in the book, but far more important and far more complex than I had originally thought. Mm-hmm. No, he's a, he's a very interesting character. He does evolve over the course of this very short book, which speaks well of you. I enjoyed it when he showed up. He always has very interesting and insightful things to say. He's clearly between two or three or four stools, as we sure. say in Russian. He doesn't quite know what to do, but he is in his community and his family – to mix metaphors, where the rubber meets the road. Yes, what absolutely. What he says matters a lot. Absolutely. And uh, um, I, I, um, In this, I want to also take the opportunity to tell you that in shaping a, a book like this, um, I, I wanted – it went through a series of mutations, meaning drafts, and it, sometimes the story really changed. There was, there was a um, – at the beginning, it was much more concerned with the Luis de Carvajal story. Then I realized that in putting this together, together with Steve, my my co-author and illustrator, that this was really the story of the past infringing on the present and of the present trying to reinterpret the past, that the story of Luis de Carvajal and the story of Rolando were kind of symmetrical and that their families needed to be understood in full in the past and in the present. They were kind of mirrors or reflections of one another. And if you notice the features in terms of design of Luis de Carvajal and of the brother are actually quite similar. This was deliberate. We wanted to make the characters really different, but at the same time look alike in in, in that they belong to two very different centuries, two very different periods in time. And yet they have, they have a common quest, and that quest is one that that uh, shows us that uh, we are we are more than ourselves mm-hmm. we are descendants of people who started a search um, which we might right now be continuing without our knowledge well i can i won't speak too personally but i am definitely doing that in my own life <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> again, I won't wax uh, autobiographical, but boy, oh boy, is that right? Um, one, one, <laughs> one of the one, maybe it's my age. I don't know. The uh, one of the characters that I found uh, tr- truly hilarious, and he really there really wasn't more to him than there was, and I think he stands for all of us. Well, I won't speak for you, but all of us was Professor Contreras. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish, but I got that. You know, I, I was hoping it. that you would stop I, on him. I got it, Marshall. Yeah. Im- <laughs> I think that we academics are are dishonest in many ways. And one of them is the fact that uh, we have enemies and we measure ourselves by the by the size and the quality of our enemies. At least I think I do. I think that in the end it is not only my friends but uh, my my enemies who speak for myself. And um, there are two or three out there that I wanted to include in the book, one in particular with whom I have had this uh, rough series of dialogues. We really see the world in so different way, in such different ways. And I wanted to show the extent to which we, we, we create animosities. We antagonize each other. Originally, I wanted to use his name in the book, but my publisher thought that it would be more prudent to change the name. And the word Contreras in Spanish uh, was the perfect choice. It means really a contrarian. This is the character who is also a professor but has been moving from one one university to another, uh, is eager to find the one story that will make his career in, in front of the large public. And he's not going to stop at anything in order to get that particular story. He is the other side of me. I mean, in the end, our enemies are our antagonists are really the shadow part of ourselves. And we polish our arguments. We, we define ourselves by what, by that, that nemesis, uh, by the stand that that nemesis takes. So I find Contreras to be a very attractive character. And in a webpage, by the way, Marshall, that Steve Schenken, the, my collaborator and I uh, put together for the, for the, for the graphic novel, mm-hmm. there is a statement by Contreras in which he denounces the book <laughs> and claims that this is uh, that he's going to go to court. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I think you're right that that that, that, that there's a little Contreras in all of us. I mean, <laughs> that's what we do, you know. In I, all of us, and that I think that's good. You know, I, I think would, it's important to have the the other voice within us to yeah. to to sharpen the voice that we come out yeah. with. I used to tell I still sometimes tell people that I didn't go to graduate school to read books or write them. I went to argue about them. Absolutely. <laughs> I Absolutely. wasn't interested in that other part. You know, and when they told me I had to do it, I was resistant for a long time. <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't know. I just want to argue about them. Thank you very much. So let, let me ask you this. What was it like to work with uh, Steve? What kind of sort of collaborate how did you how did you work the the text and the and the, the actual um, um, the actual graphics out together? Mm-hmm. Steve is uh, a, an extraordinarily talented uh, graphic artist. He's also a novelist of young adult books. He, I had been a fan of his work, of particularly of a couple of graphic novels that he did for young adults that have a, a, a unifying character called Rabbi Harvey mm-hmm. that lives in the Old West. And at one point... Steve and I shared a stage after the event. I told him how much I admired him and I invited him to have a, to have dinner. In the conversation, we became friends soon after Steve 
in put together a mini graphic novel, maybe six or eight pages, that has me as a character meeting Rabbi Harvey, a, Rabbi Harvey flying to Mexico. I was literally floored, flabbergasted mm -hmm. by by that. And the, a conversation, the conversation continued, and we decided. Steve said maybe we can do something together, and we decided to put this together. It was a, a, an idea that I had for a long time of the, uh, a murder mystery taking place in in the Southwest with the crypto Jews. And Steve, in the collaboration with him, really brought it to fruition. Steve and I worked on the plot for a long time. And when it was finally finished, we, we sat down and started to imagine the different characters, the way they dress, the way they, the, the hair, the facial expressions, the, the texture of the Southwest as a whole with terracotta colors, the, the sunset, the sunrise. And then Steve started drawing them and I was, I, I, I was mesmerized by it. It was an, an intense, fruitful, very happy collaboration that uh, has, has, has really left me with a wonderful taste in my mouth. And we are now beginning to think of the next episode with mm -hmm. the same kind of detective character, Ilan, embarking on, on, on another type of quest. Mm -hmm. Well, there's something very uh, attractive about um, your character particularly, because if you don't mind me using this word, there's a sort of hapless comedic Right. <laughs> you know, you're always saying the wrong thing and sort of getting distracted by something and, you know, and then Irina has to bring you back to earth or somebody brings you back. I, I do this all the time. You know? Yeah, that's the, that's, I think that that is uh, something that Steve wanted to, to, I, to, to put in. And I said, go for it. And the more he put it in, the more I realized that it is a feature of me and that he was making fun of it, but in a, in the most gentle and, and, uh, and kind way. So um, that kind of character might hopefully will continue in other episodes. I, I also want to tell you that there are uh, a series of elements that uh, we wanted to include in the book as a, as a, homage to some of our predecessors in the graphic novel form. Steve and I both share a big solid passion for Tintin. Oh, yeah. And that's, Steve that's said that maybe Tintin, the hair, I have yeah. little hair left. Yeah. Uh, but Steve wanted to put this little hair at the very center of my forehead that is kind of reminiscent of a Tintin that I love. It's mm -hmm. not real. I mean, I don't have it in real life, <laughs> but I just love. And there are other elements that um, we have subtly inserted here and there connected with, for instance, Will Eisner, whose book about the Protocols of the Wise of Zion mm -hmm. is, is crucial to me. And uh, I wanted this book to have the same type of image and text connected to delve into a, a, a story that is a... That, that is serious, that is historically uh, crucial, and that very few people know about. And finally, this is my third graphic novel, and in all of them, done with different graphic artists, there's one scene that where I end up, show, where I show up peeing. And uh, Steve had seen the two previous graphic novels, and he said, I'm going to figure out a way to insert that as well. <laughs> and so there it is. No, I noticed the uh, the Tintin um, homage. It was, <laughs> it's quite clear. Also in some other things, you know, like, for example, the uh, 
the blank frames where there's no text. Exactly. Just action. That he, because he, whatever his name was, he loved to do that. And, yeah. and they, they play an important part and, and they're a little bit mysterious. Right. Just, in that, that no quality of, yeah. the, of the mysterious is exactly what we yeah, wanted to, like to no, bring in. Yeah, no, it's just, you just see things moving and that's all there is. So anyway, I think it's an absolutely terrific book. I do. And I hope a zillion people go out and buy it. And I hope yeah, it well, produces thank more. Thank you so and, much. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for spending uh, the time with us today. Let me ask our traditional um, final question on new books in history. And that is, um, what are you working on now? Well, I was I was after this and after doing a, a bunch of things, I was thinking of taking a vacation and going to the Bahamas, but my wife is not going to <laughs> allow me. Um, and thus, I am I'm sitting already and doing another book, uh, another series of books. And one of them is with Steve. I'm thinking of doing uh, uh, another episode of this that deals with a very little known incident. And that is that Shakespeare and Cervantes died on the same day. Really? Um, according to different calendars, but on the same day, and there has always been a question if Cervantes knew of Shakespeare and if Shakespeare knew of Cervantes. And we do know that Shakespeare wrote a, co-wrote a play in which one of the characters that Cervantes uh, shaped, that wrote, uh, shows up. So that is an opportunity to delve into issues of, of um, authorship and authenticity of uh, both Shakespearean and Cervantian uh, legacies and to connect the two in ways that I hope are going to be uh, innovative. Well, that, so let's wait. Let's that, see what that happens. That sounds terrific. I can't, I can't wait to see it. Um, let me say that we've been talking to Ilan Savans today about a graphic novel that he produced with Steve Schenken called El Illuminado and you can buy it from basic books now. I hope that the paperback comes out soon. And, um, Ilan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. It's been terrific. Thank okay. you very much for the wonderful questions. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ilan Stavans about his book, El Illuminado, a graphic novel which he co-authored with the artist Steve Schenken. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.